The Green and Mullen Show is proudly sponsored by Boyle Sports. Bet £10 with Boyle Sports and you will get £20 in free bets. All the information you need is on boylesports.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Greenwood and Mulner Show. Me and Sam have been speaking to Olympic royalty. And that is with, well, he's got the best Wi-Fi out of all of us. That's a little spoiler for his later well, on. Well, that's not it, hard, is it? No, it's definitely not. It's Lyndon Longhorn, who is absolutely fantastic value, isn't he, really? Uh, isn't he, Sam? Yeah, he really, really is. Um, what a wonderful, lovely 45-minute conversation we've just had with him. Really enjoyable. Um Guy's an inspiration, isn't he? Let's face it. And he's, um, I think he's, he'd be very good as a motivational speaker when he's um, finished swimming. Um, obviously, he's got goals to set and obviously Paris in three years' time is a big, big, big one, probably the, the pinnacle. Um, having made his Paralympic debut in Tokyo uh, this year. But um, yeah, cracking lad, as you'll come to hear. Yeah, very much so. And you could tell that there was a determination after he retired. He gave up on swimming after Rio, where he didn't qualify, unfortunately. He thought, no, I've had enough. And it was probably the birth of his daughter that gave him the biggest inspiration. And he talked a lot about his family in particular, Sam, giving him the kit of the backside to get to, to uh, Tokyo and beyond. And it's a great little story, isn't it? Yeah, it just goes to show how important uh, the people you surround yourself with are and how they can help shape you. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story he's got. Um, his outlook on life is, is, is sensational and really, um, I don't know the word, um, other than inspiring really. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Well, that was, you've nicked my word. I was going to say inspiring, but I think as well that it is, it's a, it's a common theme with a lot of these sort of athletes um, that they've had so much, you know, difficulty in their lives at some point to then go, you know what, I'm going to get off my backside, off the floor and get up again to show that bounce back ability is really, really inspiring, as we've mentioned. But these Paralympians in particular have it even harder than the Olympians. Uh, the normal Olympics because obviously of the the extra difficulty the challenges shows. they face on a daily exactly. basis, yeah, which, exactly. he, which which he speaks very openly about. Exactly. Um, so, you, so to have that challenge on top of one of the biggest challenges ever in the Olympics or Paralympics to get to to get to that stage is an absolute you know honor really to get to that to that level really. Yeah, whilst he's got a full time job and a family. It's like, how do you find the time? Ridiculous, isn't it, really? I mean, I, know, I, I mean, revelation, he gets up earlier than me. So, well, that's how he does it. Doesn't it? It's not rocket science. But, yeah, he's, he's, he is just inspiring. And, and I hope you it, it conveys to the listener as well just how... Uh, just how wonderful the guy is. He's, he's an absolute... Um, brilliant human being and I hope I hope he gets a medal in, in Paris because he deserves it he does deserve it and I think he deserves to be on the touchline at St James's Park against Tottenham in a couple of well mm. this is getting, this is, we're getting this, while this is getting recorded this will be probably just before the Tottenham game I believe yeah, yeah. so just before, just before the Tottenham game so I hope 
he's on the touchline for that because I think Steve Bruce, who we expect to still be in charge for the game, could bad, badly need uh, some motivation from a fan like Lyndon. But let's get this uh, show on the road. It is the Greenwood and Milner show, and it's with Lyndon Longhorn. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Greenwood and Milner show here on Newcastle Fans TV, and it's live on NFTV Extra Ball of view, viewers out here. Today, me and Sam are joined by a British Paralympian swimmer that has just been at the Olympics in Tokyo. It is a big welcome to Lyndon Longhorn. Lyndon, welcome to the Greenwood and Milner show here on Newcastle Fans TV Extra tonight. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join us. Sam, Lyndon is, I think, follows the Twitter page, doesn't he? And it was someone that we just had to keep an eye just with just with everything that was going on with the Olympics, just seeing how well all the parliaments yeah. were with see how everything was going along. And um, it was somebody we thought, we've got to try and get him on after after Tokyo. And it's finally happened. Well, summertime's great because everyone's in a great mood because Newcastle can't spoil your weekend. <laughs> uh, summertime, the sun's shining and the Olympics are so uplifting and brilliant. And then obviously the Paralympics as well equally is brilliant. And we've had the likes of Joseph Craig, Stephen Miller on before. So it's only fair we get Lyndon on. But Lyndon, like, obviously Olympics, Paralympics had a bit of a different feel this this time round with a lack of a crowd. Did that kind of spoil your debut a bit? Not really, no, because I kind of said to myself, it's nice to go out there and, like, you know the crowd's not there, but at the same time, like, I've not experienced the crowds at the games. So, in a way, a lot of people were saying, like, oh, it's going to be different because there's no crowds there or anything like that. Um, but now it's like, I've been out there, experienced the crowds. It's still been an absolute great atmosphere with the whole team. But at the same time, it's like now I'm building up to Paris in 2024 and you know the crowds are going to be there. So in a way, I looked at it and said, would I rather have done Tokyo with the crowd and then go to Paris with the crowd, without the crowd? Or would I rather have done it this way around? And I think for me, it's better off doing it this way because it's just been a whole amazing experience. I mean, my first race, I was absolutely bricking it. Like, I went out and I was like, Shit, like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> after the first race, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Like, I know what I'm doing now. Um, but I'm like, now it just excites us because I'm like, hold on. There could have been like the crowd of St. James's, James's Park there. And now it's just like, oh my God, just, like, think about what's going to happen in Paris. So, yeah, the excitement's building. First session back in the pool today, and the hunger's still there. The desire's there. Just got to keep pushing forward. Of course you do, and I think like it's something you said. Just as soon as you kind of get into the swing of things, you know, getting into the water and just getting a feel for it. It's like a footballer's making that first pass, or you know, having that first shot. You feel like you're in into the game essentially. Um, How quickly do they take you to adapt to actually being at the Olympics, being in front of millions of people on TV, and really think actually I deserve to be here? For me, like getting out there. So obviously the whole journey from basically stepping on the flight at Heathrow to then landing and then you've got your PCR tests to do daily. Now, if you didn't do your PCR test, don't get me wrong, I know you're pulling faces, right? Because you're thinking, God, up your nose every day, the back of your throat every day, Uh, no thanks. But it wasn't. It was just a saliva test every single day and you only have to get it up to like a certain line. So it was fine. But at the same time, if you're waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you can't produce saliva. Like, just get some chewing gum and you're absolutely fine. So, because <laughs> without that, I tell you what, I probably wouldn't have even been able to do anything, to be honest. 
But the whole situation, like, don't get me wrong, jet lag hit me really, really hard because it was like an 11, 12-hour flight that we had. And then, obviously, we had like four or five-hour delay in the airport because everyone had to come back with PCR tests and test negative. So the whole thing was just amazing, like an amazing experience to go through. Yes, crowds weren't there. Yes, spectators weren't there, things like that. But to be honest with you, adapting the whole situation for the first games and going through that whole process just preps you for the next one's coming and it just builds you up. And yes, like I would say about four days it took me to get over jet lag and you just want to sleep. You just want to like go to bed. You just want to get up like whatever the UK time is. You're waking up at like one o'clock in the morning like, oh yeah, it's still dark. Back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> at least at least I didn't have to sit up watching your castle matches like, but hey. <laughs> well, you know, try having kids, you feel like that all the time. But yeah. uh, I mean, so was it just you on your own going to Tokyo or were you, were you allowed to take sort of one member of your family or one friend or like your coach or was it just you on your own out in the Far East? I get, I've been asked this a lot to be honest since coming back and in all fairness, it was just us. So it was only the athletes and the selected coaching staff that could go out there. So it was a bit of a shame, but at the same time, it's like my coach was hungry to go out there. My personal trainer was hungry to go out there. Everyone was just wanting to go out to see us at my first games. And it's like, I know it was a shame, but at the same time, the support what I had back here was absolutely phenomenal. And you see it all over social media, the tweets that come in, the posts on Instagram, the posts on Facebook, getting tagged and everything. It was just absolutely awesome. And yes, you know that no one's there, but at the same time, the spirit's there behind you. And as soon as you step behind that block, or as soon as you get into warm-up, you just think, I know there's thousands of people back in the northeast supporting this, and I know everyone's watching back at home. So that's why you've just got to use that motivation and use it all to yourself to go, just get in and get it done. Like, what is there to lose? Like, you're only going in there to either win it or basically come out there and do a season's best. That's it. Everyone's a winner because you've got to the goal what you wanted to achieve. So it's always looking forward rather than looking backwards all the time. That's a fantastic attitude to have, isn't it? Because you get you, you literally put yourself under no pressure, which yeah. a lot of people talk about, don't they? They talk about in these big events, you know, Paralympics, Olympics, you know, representing your country at an extremely, you know, high level. To put no pressure on yourself must have given you the smallest advantages against the rest of the field because that makes the difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it was a bonus feeling, no pressure going out there. But obviously, I set myself some small goals, which I knew like it wasn't major. But at the same time, it was like in my head, I was thinking, to me, it is. And everyone was like, don't put no pressure on yourself because you're only going out there to do your best. And then in the next four years, you know what's going to come by the time you get to Paris. And obviously... When you get there, you know what happens in Tokyo has happened in Tokyo. Then you're going into Paris and you just think, I've improved from this. And as long as you improve from there, then it's just an amazing thing to take on board. And you just think, what more can you do when you've set the target back in 2008 of wanting to achieve that dream of becoming a Paralympic athlete or Olympic athlete? You've chased it and you've not given up. That's why I always say to everyone, it doesn't matter what you, what sport you do, whether you've been in football, whether it's being in tennis, whether it's golf, athletics, whatever it is, even if it's like a job you want to pursue, as long as you've got the motivation to get up every morning and get stuff done, what what more can you get? What more can you ask for? 
you mentioned little targets you set yourself. Um, by any chance, was that British record one of them? It was. So it's funny enough you asked that because I was going up there and I said, as long as I can break at least one British record or at least make one final, I know I've done a good job. In myself, I know I've done a good job and I've done myself proud. Done everyone back at home proud and that's all I could ask for it out in Tokyo. And I thought, now, as soon as I came back, I was like, I really want a world record. And I really want a <laughs> record. And I love the game. But I also want the medal as well. So now I'm like, <laughs> when I set the target out, when I very first started swimming, I always said, if I go to a games, I'll be happy with that. Because that, that myself, I know that I've achieved something amazing to get there. And it's not every day everyone says, I've been to Olympic Games or like I've actually trained for something or I've been an elite athlete. And I knew like it's going to take a lot of hunger and desire to get there. And I never set the target of actually achieving a medal. But that's why I didn't want to set the expectations high. And I thought, as soon as I came back, I'm thinking, I don't know, why didn't I ever set my target of improving a medal? Because now I'm like, I'm going to want one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fair point. But it's actually, it ties into the question for one of our... Uh, one of our viewers tonight from John, Evening Linden and Gents, I'd like to ask what is your next target in your career? Is that the ultimate target, a medal in Paris? Or is it something earlier on, say, I don't know, in the, ne in the next few championships that you've got scheduled? So for me, it's about now, obviously I've just got back in the water today after taking a month off. So I came back from Tokyo and I said straight away, I need a break you can't just carry on going. You, you couldn't just come back from like a major and just go, oh, I'm getting back in tomorrow because you need that mental and physical break. And this is where I've learned a lot over the years. And I think for me, going forward now, it's kind of setting yourself the little steps. So my aim is now the whole of this year is just to get fit and keep improving on my times. Try and get these British records down further so that no one else can attack them. And that's the way you've got to look at it because... If you come out of swimming and someone beats them and say, I need to go back because I've got unfinished business that I need to do now. Um, but then it's also looking forward to Paris. And I think for me, if I get to Paris as well, it's kind of going out there and being like, I want to be world champion and I want to try and achieve that. Even if they go out there and place like bronze, silver or gold, it's still an amazing achievement because you've got a medal. And it doesn't matter whether you're first, second or third. Everyone who goes to a game be seen as a winner because you've got that qualification of being at, on the biggest stage you can possibly think of and I know a lot of people look at it and say but you don't get paid like you don't get paid the amount of football and it doesn't get looked at like football at the same time why should money become an object and I think that's the way a lot of people look at it now and it's like boxing you see a lot of people like with YouTube and things like that going into the sport and it it's annoying because it's like you shouldn't have to pay your way to get into it, you should have to earn the right to actually want to achieve that. And I think that's where a lot of it's perceived. But I think for me, it's kind of now setting my target for Paris and being like, I want to at least place in the top three in the world and try and become a world champion in at least one event. So that's where my head's at. Does the prep have to kind of be tweaked a little bit? Because obviously, usually it's like a four-year cycle, isn't it? Trying to, yeah. I'm guessing, to, to peak around the Olympics. Um, but obviously, with everything that's been going on, it's now only three years. Is that better for you, or I don't know, or is it kind of disruptive in a way? I think 
he kind of, it's kind of two ways to look at it. You can take the positives from it and go, it's three years away because it builds your excitement up to say, there's not long to go till the next games. And I know you've got that gap from like, you've had Rio in 2016, then you've had a five-year wait for Tokyo. And to think that I'd left the sport in 2016 because I'd retired completely and I just needed that mental and physical break to actually refresh and try and pull myself around. And now when I look at it, I'm like, it built my hunger up to come back to the sport and I was more desired to come into it and say, I want to go to Tokyo. Yes, I wanted to go to London, missed London, but I was still a torchbearer back then. I went to Rio trials and I failed to make the team in Rio. Now, I could have easily just said now, I will go and work full time and I'll just never achieve the dream of becoming a Paralympian. And I think that's where the hunger's got to come back. The fire's got to still be there. Because if you've got no fight to go for it, then you can't expect to build up to the next games. Obviously, being out in Tokyo just inspired me even more. When you see the whole Olympic Village, seeing the whole venue, it kind of just makes you think, wow, like I've actually achieved the dream what I wanted to achieve. And you just think, how can it get better from here? So that's where you've just got, like, every single day now that I get in the water, it's like, I just want to push on and push on. 100%. You talk about that break after Rio, London. Um, it must have been a massive decision to go, do you know what, I'm just going to finish. But I have to, when reading up on you, was your daughter probably the biggest inspiration for you to get back in the pool, work that little bit harder, to then go to Tokyo and to do as well as you have done and maybe even do anything? do even better in the future because it seems like your your daughter is literally your biggest superstar your biggest number one fan yeah just wants to make sure that you do the best you physically and possibly can do absolutely i mean for me after 2016 i kind of seen it as the end and i was like you start and question yourself and think am i going to become a paralympian am i going to become the athlete that i wanted to be am i going to step on the biggest stage am i going to perform in front of a crowd at St. James's Park, or am I going to perform on a bigger stage at a concert? Things like that. That's what you'll start and question yourself about. Those are the questions what run through my head. And I was kind of sat there thinking, what do I want to do with life? Is it a case of, do I quit? And everyone was saying, yes, you need to quit. Yes, you need to go and do something else. Yes, you need to do this. It's all these people around you that kind of make you think, okay, I'll take a moment to rethink about life. Then fast forward and obviously I had a little girl in 2018 and if it wasn't for her getting in the water at such a young age and progressing through water babies and seeing her just develop at the rate what she's developed. I mean, since lockdown now, she's been back in the water like four weeks and she's already gone up another level. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, how on earth are you progressing this quick? And it just motivates you because you think, when I've been out in Tokyo and she's watched my races and I get videos saying like, daddy's a winner and things like that you, there's nothing more that makes you prouder of being a parent and there's nothing more of loving than loving your child and that's why every session that I went in to warm up or when, whether it was to train or whether it was just to swim down you just think to yourself those are the moments that you live for and this is the moment that I'm building up for in Paris for when she's there and she sees me step on the stage and it motivates her and if, if she goes on whether it's in swimming or whatever at least I know I've done something right by motivating my daughter to actually get into a sport or achieving the dreams what she wanted to achieve. So that's where I always see it as a positive to actually motivate it. And I know a lot of people come up to us and say, you're an inspiration and you're motivating and things like that, but I only do what I want to do and that's where I always see myself going. And 
if it motivates one person and it inspires people, then great. Like, I know I've achieved something with life, but at the same time, it's not a main objective. At least I know I'm doing something that I've always wanted to do. 100%. Just before I let Sam come in. Sorry, Sam, I just want to quickly say something. That just, just with your daughter. Um, sorry, Lyndon. You know, he's saying that she's gone up a level. Does she get her swimming uh, technique from her mum? Right, you want to say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, I'm going to swim on my plate, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it there. <laughs> Sorry, Sam, I mean, go on. I mean, your experience of water, baby, sounds very different to mine. Very, 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 very different. Mine, mine was just a load of splashing and crying, um, and that was just from me. But um, <laughs> what, what, what came first, though? For what did you kind of not push on to your daughter first? Was it did was it swimming, or did she have a little black and white romper suit, or a little Newcastle shirt? What came first? So she had the black and white. Romper, romper suit first I knew straight away I was like as soon as I seen it I thought that's it you're having the black and white I'm not bothered like you're having that first and then you'll get a, then you'll get the shirt and then I'm thinking do I get the shirt when the club's in this position or not and I'm thinking to myself mm. okay I'll just get it like at least then she's got a first Newcastle top so that's the main thing but yeah like I've always said and like Beth's always said as well like we've both completely agree with you should never force anything upon the kids to what they what you think they should do yes being in the water is a life skill and it should be taught to a lot of kids because there's a lot of kids who i speak to now who don't get in the water or who are scared or things like that and it kind of makes you think if you went out to sea or if you went in the water to see if your child was drowning would you then get in like what happens if there's no lifeguards or anything like that you need to get in and try and save your child so I think that's where it's important for a lot of people to actually get in the water and learn just the bit, even if it's just the basics, that's the main thing of like just a t- basic technique or basic breath control, things like that. But yeah, like I would never force anything upon it. I've always said when she grows older, if she wants to go into swimming or if she wants to go to horse riding, whatever she wants to go into, like she'd always have support with that. Hundred percent. I think. I think. I think that's even like this. The sporting background as well. It's like trying to push it to do something, even if it's not just swimming, just to get her to push it to do something sporty, keep them fit. And you know, maybe one day she might become the next Lyndon Longhorn and uh, a Longhorn, sorry, and in, uh, in horse racing or football and rugby or whatever. Yeah. And that could be fantastic. And it, it's it's like a generational thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think the important thing is as well. I know a lot of people who question it to say like with my disability do you find it hard when you've got a kid and things like that and yes it is hard and it's like every day is hard when you've got a little one because you're trying to adapt to things and i've always gone through life adapting and i think without that it kind of makes you the the stronger person inside to say you know what this is where you accept that you need help and i think diversity has become a big part over these last few years to uh, like be more inclusive with everything and doesn't matter what race you are, what age you are, what sex you are, disability, things like that, you'll always be accepted no matter where you go. And I know you see like footballers taking the knee and great it's great that you see that. And I think being disabled and having a little girl who looks up to you and she goes into nursery and you hear her when, when I take her to nursery on Fridays, she's always like, 
oh, I'm proud of Daddy, or the teachers always say she's constantly talking about Daddy be, like being at the Olympics and things like that. And it's it makes you proud. And she, yes, she's always had that look, like when I put my legs on and things like that, she's like, special legs, Daddy, special legs. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great that she recognises that. And I've witnessed it a lot when you go out and you see parents being like, don't stare or don't do this or don't do that. And you kind of, th- <clears throat> it makes you take a step back because you're like, you, the kids need to be educated so that when they get older, they know that not everyone's the same, but should be treated the same, if that makes sense. Because they shouldn't be to be feeling different. And it's like, with people with disabilities, you could quite easily turn around and say, oh, I think they should go to special needs school or they need to go to this type of school or we need to just homeschool them or things like that. But no, like, if they're made to feel inclusive and you send them to mainstream or things like that, it makes them want to want to achieve more and they feel like they can go out places. I mean, do you think as well, like, the Paralympics just kind of really does epitomise that because it, it just seems to be going from strength to strength to strength. I mean, you look 20 years ago and viewing figures, no one really bothered, but now it's massive, it's brilliant, and there's, there's just the scope of events there are fantastic, aren't they? Absolutely, and I think when you look back to Beijing, at the viewers what hit there and then you're building up four years to a home games in London and you get all the big athletes in Britain who are going out there and everyone wants to jump on board you're getting the media on you're getting like national broadcasters on things like that and it's going internationally then you're heading out to Rio and then you go coming to Tokyo and I think it was at Tokyo it's like 20 million viewers that Channel 4 had hit which was like the biggest wow. viewing that the Paralympic Games have ever had and when you look at it it kind of makes you think there's not just one disability that you look at. And that's why you see the, hash- the hashtag that goes around, we are the 15. And it's like the 15% of disabilities should be made to feel inclusive. And when you look at, like, you've got dwarfs, you've got amputees, you've got people that with, like, cerebral palsy, you've got people that are paralysed, things like that. It shows how much inclusive either is now within parasport. And it's not just... You don't just see the one sport, for example, like you don't just see everyone doing swimming. You don't see everyone doing gymnastics or cycling. There's a broad range of sports, and that's why every single game that have came round, there's a new sport that's always included. And it's great to see that there's more disability people wanting to get into that, to go on, whether it's to inspire people, whether it's just to keep fit, whether it's because others are inspiring them. And that's where everyone looks up to them in it. The Paralympics are just getting bigger and bigger, and it's crazy to think where they could go in the next few years. hundred percent. I think I say I think Sam said twenty four million people yeah. watched on Channel Four. That's absolutely insane numbers. That crazy, really, really like... is. Hundred percent. But I was just gonna I was just gonna touch it back onto Newcastle a little bit because we did an interview with the Newcastle United amputee team, and they they, they even said to us Sam that we should try and get involved, shouldn't we? We should try and. You know, see yeah, how we yeah. get on. We how yeah. we how we, how we would get on. Um, I can't. Can you remember what they actually wanted us to do? Was it almost like to kind of tape our legs a little bit, or to, to do something similar so that it would be yeah. difficult, or at least try and see how you would get on in that certain situation? I mean, yeah, I thought I was just after ten pints or time. Yeah, I think the deal I was... The joke we... was coming there. It'd be like, <laughs> 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 yes, please. 
<laughs> love that. But uh, yeah, I think I think that was that was the deal with Alex, wasn't it? That we had to kind of we had to play on crutches, basically, wasn't it? With only yes. one one um, leg allowed, uh, we we do need to do that. I mean, that would make a very because there's nothing better than watching a team from a fan channel get absolutely humiliated. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we won against some of the three two a couple weeks ago. Didn't see you there. No, I know, but that was, you know, that was. We all work in retail. We know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that one for a separate video, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Lyndon, let's talk about Newcastle United while while we're talking about all things Newcastle. Um, zero wins from eight games in all competitions. It's the perfect start to the new Premier League and League Cup season. Um, <laughs> it's just going to be a long, hard season by the look of a Linden, isn't it? Yeah, it's the best start we've had in years, man. No, I'm joking. Horrendous. <laughs> 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 like, it's crazy to think, like, when you look back and think where we were when we got relegated, when we had Rafa and Rafa could have left, and that he stayed and he actually got us back. And you look at where we were then, and I know, obviously, when you look back, the team was actually bonded. You knew where everyone was playing and things like that. But at the same time now, you've, we've got Steve Bruce in charge, and it's like, yes, he's managed, what is it, 999 games, even off a 1,000 games or something, from what they were saying on, at the weekend. And it's like, but what is the one to make, to make him like the biggest manager that stepped in Newcastle's ground? I mean, for me, the best managers that we've had were like Rafa Benitez or like Sir Bobby Robson. Like, they're the people that you need to come into the club. But when I look at the club now and when it was back when Bobby Robson was in charge, when we had like Alan Shearer and Kieran Dyer and players like that, when I met the team back in 99, still got my legs to this day that were signed by all the players, to be honest with you. So it's crazy. Um, But you look at it and you just think, where is the club actually going? Like, we've hit rock bottom. If nothing happens soon, then where is it going to go? Are we going to go back to the Championship? Are we going to go down to League One? Are we going to follow Sunderland all the way down? Like, it won't get that bad. It won't get that bad. No, not that bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's crazy because like, you just want the club. And I know a lot of people think we're deluded and think like, oh, Newcastle want to win trophies and be like Man City. It's not what we want at all. We want the club to be in the top half of the table because that's where we want to be. It's not a case of every season you know what's coming. You're going to be fighting for survival. You're fighting to be in the league by the skin of your teeth. It shouldn't be like that. Like We've got players there that you know can play, but at the same time, they wander around like headless chickens and they, they don't know what they're doing day in, day out. And surely you would think it's a manager's job to get the players going. If we stepped into a pool at a race and you step down the block and you're questioning what you're doing, you kind of looking at the coach is looking at you thinking, are you actually taking the mic? Like, <laughs> you've trained all this time, but you think like the training, what they go through, you would think that they would have some idea to actually pick themselves up on a weekend. I mean, come on, you've got like all the fans in the stadium. We've got like 50,000 fans in the stadium that can actually push forward and want to drive and see the club. What's more motivating than having a home crowd behind you to like push you on to go and get them winning goals? But yeah, it, it, it is going to be a long season. It's frustrating. You just 
every weekend when the week the match comes around, it's like, are we even going to get a point? And you should. Oh. But it's hard to say because it's a reality, and it, you look at it and think, where are the points going to come from? Like by Christmas, and how many wins can we actually get by Christmas, and what's going to happen? But yeah, it it's it's terrible to be honest with you. Yeah, no, you've summed it up perfectly there. And I think we're in a bit of a cycle at the moment where you look at, you get to two o'clock on a match day and you see the teams come out and you think, oh, that game's there for the taking today. We do this. Yeah. And then picture of um, a younger you, Lyndon, and, and the greatest ever human being, Alan Shearer. You referenced that back in 99 when you met the team. How did that come about? God, um, it was through one of the guys, one of the guys who I know works at Newcastle United, um, Obviously, I've always had a big, big heart for Newcastle. And I've always followed the team, like, right from a young age. And when you look back, and I remember when I first went for my first set of legs, and I knew, obviously, I asked for Tomb Raider on my legs, like, God, what was I was doing back then. But, hey, why do you want that? And I was like, oh, I've always admired um, Angelina Jolie and this, that, and this. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I decided... Just get them black and white because I'm a Newcastle fan. It's it's simple, like first pair of legs, and then when I got the team signed and obviously coming about it with like working quite closely with the Northern Echo and having the contacts there. From that day of like meeting Bobby Robson and you meet Alan Shearer, you meet the team back in '99, and that's the team where you knew the heart was with the club. You knew that people were going out every weekend and fighting for the goals. I mean. I remember once did when we were in like Champions League and stuff. And now you're thinking, how do you go from being a club that goes from Champions League to now fighting for your life every single season? But yeah, like when I go back, think back to that day now, and you look at the goals what we scored with Shearer, you look at the goals what we scored with like Shoulderami Orbi that was involved, and you get all these players that you look back on, and now it's like. Where what's going to happen over these next few years? But that for me was like the highlight of my like my life. Basically, that squad. Looking back, yes, I've met people like various players over the years, but at the same time, that was the penultimate squad. What you knew, you were excited to go to St James's Park every weekend, and you were going to get the thrill of what you wanted. You'd you'd hear the crowd roar, goosebumps would go up on the back of your neck because you knew what was coming. And that's what you should feel like when you go to St James's Park. From the from the teams that come up, the away teams like for Leeds or West Ham or Manchester United, who sit up in the gods, like you know that they're gonna hear us. And when we go quiet, it's like that's not the St James's Park what you're used to. So mm. yeah. When you were talking about that time, the ninety nine time, the early two thousands under Sir Bobby, and obviously the picture that Sam's got there of Alan Shearer, I've Obviously, everybody loves Alan Shearer, and quite rightly so. But my question to a lot of people about that sort of era is, who is your second favourite player? Because everybody's oh. favourite player, every, everybody's favourite player was Shearer for obvious reasons. Yeah. But there's always been like a different answer for the second favourite player around about that time. Now, I'm not going to say who me, who I think. I think I, I think Sam has a similar opinion. But is, I wonder if it's the same. As yours, Lyndon, is who as you say is your second favourite player? Oh god. Um you know, because I was always a fan of Shea Given. 
I was always you've got it. You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> you've like, got it in one. <laughs> that that for me, like they were the two players who you looked at. Like the the goals, what he was saving, week in week out, you knew like one on one you could rely on them. You weren't have the defense wasn't running back and being like, shit. Like we need to run back. We need to actually protect them. But like, what a guy he was. You knew. That you could rely on him when he was injured, and you that you could still rely on Steve Harper, like the yeah. two great keepers that we had yeah. back then. I mean, yes, you've got Carl Darlow now, who's still a good keeper, and you've got um, who's oh, what do you call him? And Woodman, the, the number one. You know, oh, Dubravka, Dubravka, because he's injured. That's why I've never seen him play. <laughs> and I'm like, where the hell's he at? Um, but at the same time, it's like you look at them two now compared to the. Sheer given and Steve Harper, and you think, where's the keepers gone from that class? You look at the keepers across the league now, and yes, you've got De Gea's at United, you've got Allison, you've got Edison, you've got um, Kepa, like the people that are in the top half of the team. But yes, they're spending money, and I know we've not got the money, but at the same time, you'd think like the lads who are in goal want to fight for the place and want to put up a good save. And I remember when. Like Carl Darlow made the save, the saves was like three in a row, and he just got up because he got tripped up by his own player, and he like dived up <laughs> and like that's the one I let you remember. It's like that just makes him a good keeper, but at the same time, is it that one match that makes him a good keeper, or is it because he needs to do that week in week out, and you know what he's capable of? But it's like the life's been sucked out of the club, and I think I don't know whether it's like the takeover getting dragged on. And you're constantly seeing it week in, week out, where it's getting mentioned or it's been in the papers or anything like that. Or if it's like everyone's just going right to Steve Bruce out or Mike Ashley out. And it's like we need to get it in our heads that it's not going to happen anytime soon unless the Premier League go with the takeover and say, you know what, there's no grounds. Like we can't just say to these, oh, we'll let them out. Because what about the guys who went and bought City or what about the guys who were in charge at their Manchester United? or Abramovich, or the guys um, who were in charge at Spurs, you look at the people who own them clubs and it say, well, hold on a minute, if we're going to inject money into our club, what's the difference with that compared to the top end of the league? So, it makes no sense to me when the Premier League look at it and think, how can you justify where your argument's coming from? Or, who might I judge? <laughs> Well, it, it's it, it's just so frustrating and depressing, isn't it? But um, I always thought it's Steve. I remember back at the time, you've made me feel wistful about giving him Harper now. I always remember, like, <laughs> at the time, thinking Harper could go, get a move, play first team football, and he'd get an England call up, no problem. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like mad how he stayed for so long. And, like, I still have nightmares of when Shea Given left because just one yeah. more season and he'd be all time record appearance holder for Newcastle. And when the city him, didn't he after that? Yeah, and he didn't even get his testimonial or didn't yeah. get a proper send off or anything in ten years at the club and oh, I don't know. I just, I just yeah. Do you know what it's, it's, when it's I the point back, that you make. Yeah, when I look back now and like you look at the team back in ninety nine, you look at the day when it was announced breaking news, it was all over the papers when Bobby Robson got sacked. And you're thinking, Had on, you've sacked Bobby Robson. Like the guy who was doing absolutely for wonders for the club and getting them all to play and gel together. Yes, there was stuff going on in the back room at the same time, but that shouldn't be the case. 
Like, he was doing absolute wonders. And then poor guy, when he came around and had cancer, and obviously, like, when he came to the club and you seen when he came to his day in his wheelchair and you knew by then, like, it was horrible when you seen him like that because you knew... Yeah, when... I struggle to watch that now. Yeah, right. It was such a touching moment because, like, when all the players were together and you see him stood on the touchline and he was gelling them all and he, he was motivating them to get up. Whereas now it's like, where's the motivation coming from? Who in that club is actually motivating them to get on the pitch and fight for them and put on the shirt? Because, I mean, you look at it, we can fill a stadium. There's not many other clubs in the Premier League that can actually fill a stadium. And if you think, do you want to go and play for another club that can do that can do that or not do that? Do you want to go out to a different league, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in Italy or wherever it is in the world, do you want to go out to the MLS? But you're not going to witness a crowd like you get in the North East. You're not going to witness the guys that go on away days and support you day in, day out. You might be four goals down, but at the same time, the crowd's behind you. I mean, remember the day when Alan Pardew was in charge and Czech Teoti scored that wonder goal to bring it to oh. 4-4? Like, what a day that was. But at the same time, it's like, you don't see our fans leave unless it's actually abysmal performance. And we'll always have you back, but at the same time, it's like, you need to show us why we should have you back, not just relying on us to have you back all the time. Oh, what a game. That is the best game I've ever been to, is that yeah. Arsenal game. 4-0 oh, down so... at half-time, and you oh, come no. out. I just, honestly, I just could not believe that. That was that was my favourite memory of Newcastle. Finally, Lyndon, what is, there's two questions here. What's your favourite memory of Newcastle United, and what is the best memory or the best part of your career? Brilliant. I love that. Oh. His, his North, <laughs> this happens every week, Lyndon. His North Shields Wi-Fi goes after around 37 minutes. It must be something to do with, like, put a penny back in the meter. Oh, he has 20 pence back in the meter. Here he is. I knew you were going to take the mic. I knew ah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's normally a bit it's, you got your men on the call just like quick put some more no, it's just it's just no shields it's just no shields connection no shields wi-fi <laughs> you'll be coming to me for wi-fi <laughs> <laughs> oh this is going to get clipped up and it's going to be all over whatsapp when it gets back normal as well anyway yeah. two well, questions Serves you right, Lyndon. What? This is this 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 is this is behind the scenes gossip now because I always get taken the mick out of my WhatsApp my my internet froze when I inter when I interviewed Alan Shearer, and That's it was it wasn't know. it wasn't live fortunately, so we could edit it and it looked lovely. Shout out, Lyndon. <laughs> but he clipped up the bit where my internet froze and it gets replayed a lot on the oh, NFTV WhatsApp group. So. Uh, payback is coming we'll see anyway Lyndon as I was really interrupted by the powers that made by yourself (laughs) (laughs) two final questions the first let's see if we can do this again the first what's your favorite memory of Newcastle United and what is your favorite moment of your career so far I think looking back at the Newcastle United lifetime what I've had obviously when I was born in 1995 and when you meet the team in 99, like that for me was a highlight itself what I'll never forget. And I think the reason that I picked that moment is 
obviously when Bob, like Bobby Robson was in charge and you still got Shearer and you look at all the kids now who watch the videos on YouTube of their moments when Shearer's running around the pitch and you score them goals and you see the whole team, how gelled they are. And that for me is like the moments when you, you go to St. James's Park and you knew as soon as like someone was bursting down the pitch full of energy, it wasn't just one player. Though. It was like four or five people that were running down and the whole crowd was up on their feet. And I'll never forget it because I went to one of the matches where she, when she was playing and the whole, there was like four four people running down and everyone was stood up and I was like, I'm in my bloody wheelchair. Like, can you stop me down? Because <laughs> I can't see the goal. <laughs> and I just remember them scoring and I was like, well, great, I'll celebrate, but I don't know who's scored because I can't see or anything like that. All you could hear is the commentator just say, and she was just scored a goal, like the hat trick and I was like, <laughs> Great, and I didn't see it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that that for me is like a highlight. What I look back on, and I mean, obviously we've jumped on it already. Like when you you look back at when Pardew was in charge, and I know Pardew wasn't like an amazing manager, but at the same time you look back and think he did great for us because he got us into the Europa League, and that's the highest we've we've been since winning a tight win, winning a trophy. And check Tiote weight score on that wonder goal. Like there's multiple different moments that you could think of, and I know it's sad when you look back on the moments because there's players, there's players and managers that aren't here with us anymore. And you think if only the kids seen what they were like, and you see them playing on you, like when you watch the videos on YouTube and things like that, and you think that's what I want to play like. That's what I want to go and work towards. They're the moments where I want to walk out the pitch and jump out and say, that's what I want to do week in week out. I want to put the shirt on from the North East and breakfast at my club and say, I've done everything I can. So, yeah, there's there's loads of different moments that I could pick out. But those, for me, are the ones where I'm always keeping them in my head, to be honest with you. I think we need to get you in the dressing room at half-time. I mean... I agree. The, the way we come out in the second half sometimes, God knows what Bruce is saying to them, but yeah. Uh, it's I like a park the bus, but it's like, why park the bus? Like, you're nil-nil. Should you not be fighting to go and get the goals? Like, what what do you want to do? It's crazy. When you look, you look at the likes of people that play now in like different leagues, like in Barcelona, like the, yes, they're going through like a triumph at the minute with the club, with the disasters, what's going on there. You had it with Real Madrid. You had everything last season with the Super League that was getting formed and things like that. And you just think everyone pulled out at that moment to try and save from the from the clubs going to turmoil and to, from actually being pulled from the Premier League and things like that. But you look at it and it should be the motivation to get up every weekend. It shouldn't be a money drive to say, oh, well, I'm getting 150 grand a week, 100 grand a week. Because I bet you now there's kids that are playing it were in grassroots it would quite easily put on that shirt and be like I don't care what I'm getting paid because mm. that's the way it should be and this is what I go back to what I was saying earlier on when you have people that now look towards it and say everything's a money driving sport and I get it is and that's the way a lot of it's like been going down for over these last few years but at the same time do you want to let money come into your life and yes give you happiness and give you whatever you can or do you want to go and put your, put that shirt on every week and be like, do you know what? I'm bloody proud to play for this club because that's where that's where I want it to go. I wake up every morning because I want to go and stand in front of 50,000 fans. 
whether you're at Anfield, whether you're at Old Trafford or whether you're at the Etihad or White Hart Lane or wherever it is, or at the London, like the Olympic Stadium, like it shouldn't matter. They, those fans travel millions over the season, thousands of miles. If you go into the Champions League, you're travelling overseas, but at the same time, they'll always have you back because they're not going to leave you. And that's why you've always got to have the pride to put the shirt on and represent the club to push it to that next level. You look at like King Kev, you look at Dalgleish, you look at all them players back then, they would happily get on the pitch now and probably still play to be honest with you. But yeah, that that's where that's why I'll always say it. And I think having a little one myself and obviously there's not there's not a lot of money in like para sport or in like Olympic sport for what the athletes get paid, like footballers do. And at the same time, we still get up. Like I still get up at half past four in the morning to go train. And that like it doesn't drive money doesn't drive us because it's not it's not it's a too early. <laughs> But at the same time it's like everyone across Olympic and Paralympic sport will get up early to go and train. And I know like there's other sports like don't train as early, but at the same time it shouldn't be a factor to say, oh, well, I'll just go and train today or I'll go and train tomorrow. I'll do my rehab next day. Because the way I always look at it is you should always be one step ahead of your component. Whatever you're doing today, your component's doing tomorrow. So that that's the best way to look at it. I think that is a fantastic um, summary of what it's like to be a Newcastle fan, but also what it's like to be a, as a competitor as well. Um, I think that, I think that might even get Sam out of his bed for four thirty tomorrow morning to get ready oh, for whoa, work. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I, I'm up at half five with the kids, Mister Greenwood. You, uh, you know, you want to try getting up before nine? Oh, I do, I do, I do. Five to nine. That's, that's when my alarm is. Um, yeah. no, I'm only really, I'm really joking. Um, it's that Wi-Fi. It's gone again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 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 you lose electricity and everything you've got to, honestly you've got to have a proper alarm clock as well it's awful man it's what's awful. that AA's Wi-Fi is down oh we lose it <laughs> <laughs> never been a fan of AA I've never been honestly I'm only joking oh um, wow wow <laughs> wow <laughs> I was waiting for the KFC joke or something there but yeah. anyway, we'll, we'll we'll go. We'll leave that for another day. Then it's just absolutely no. Just, just yeah, that's it. Just insult the guest just before we. I know. You know. Lyndon, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show uh, this evening. And me and Sam, I just want to wish you the very best of luck with everything that you want to do in your Thank career. And if you've got any spare tickets to Paris twenty twenty four. Um, sell them by pigeon, and I might catch them by now. So. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll uh, I'm sure I can sort that out for you. <laughs> Good man, Sam. Where can everybody listen to this podcast? Everywhere: YouTube, Google, Apple, Amazon, the others. They're all there. Just you know, leave a five star review. Thank you very much. So for myself, Jonathan Green with Sam Milner, and the British Paralympian swimmer Lyndon Longhorn. We'll see you all very soon.